0: All right, let's turn to first John chapter 3. Today more strong stuff from John. Interestingly, John is known first and foremost as the apostle of love. Remember I've told the story so many times about in his old age they'd bring him up before the congregation to give a word to the congregation. He lived into his 90s, and every time he came up he would say the same thing, little children love one another. And the, the, uh, the folks in the congregation would say, John, that's, you say that every time. Don't you have anything new or different? He says, well, when you start doing that, I'll give you something else. But love, yeah. Um, John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, they had a very special friendship, known as the apostle of love, and yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he does give some very strong teachings, and we're in that section now where he's getting pretty, pretty deep. Let's read 1 John 3:15 through 19. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Wow, that's pretty strong. And you know, of course, Jesus said the same thing. If you think it in your heart and in your mind, you've done it. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because He laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren and the sister. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. Now we can pray. Father, we lift at this time in your word. We ask you to open our hearts and minds to the truth that you have for us today. Lord, we need for it to penetrate deep within us that it might have a transforming effect on who we are, how we think, what we do. Lord, just do a work in us today as we study your word together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Wow, that's a pretty strong statement. We talked about this, I wasn't here last Sunday, but the week before, how Cain hated his brother, Abel, and it resulted in him committing the literal act of murder. And interestingly, it was all about God and worship. Abel brought an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Cain did not. And again, it wasn't so much about the sacrifice, it was about the condition of their hearts that was made known by that offering that each one brought. And so as a result of Cain's hatred for his brother because his brother Abel had favor in God's sight, whereas he did not, and it was because of his own wrong heart, he murders his brother. Matthew 5, 21, 22. Jesus here says, You have heard it that it was said to the people, Long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Interesting that uh, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, that is actually the the real meaning of it. Thou shalt not murder, not take a life wrongly. There are times when self-defense requires that, when defending one's uh, family, their community, their, their nation. Our country's been in two world wars in particular, that required young men and women. Men Only men went into combat back in those days, which I kind of like. I don't think women should have to go to combat. It's our job to protect you guys. Anyway, they would have to go into combat and take lives. It was traumatic. Most people don't really enjoy that, but sometimes it's necessary, but murder is never right. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And the idea here obviously at some point in time we've all been angry with someone, but it's the harboring of that anger, that it's holding on to it. Paul said, "Don't let the sun go down on your anger or your wrath. In other words, make things right with God before the end of the day. Don't let it linger." then a root of bitterness will grow up within you. And that's deadly. I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of 70, the leaders of Israel at the time of Christ. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, we've got to dig into the root of these words to understand what jesus is saying racha from the hebrew orak it means to be empty it signifies a vain empty worthless fellow shallow brains a term of great contempt and again it's not based on factual information we talked several weeks ago about the word stupid being in the bible and by the way, God has every right to call somebody stupid because he knows who's stupid and who isn't. But this, this comes from a deep, this is from the context of hatred and anger and just calling someone the most vile thing you can think of, not because they're worthy of it or deserving of it, but simply because you hate them. Racha. And the other word fool here is from the Hebrew mora. Probably Mara, to rebel, a rebel against God, apostate from all good. This term implied among the Jews the highest enormity and most aggravated guilt. In other words, for the Jew, there's just about nothing worse that you could call someone than to call them a fool. Among the Gentiles, a certain group of people, such an expression was punished by cutting out the tongue. I guess they didn't like being called fool, did they? And thrusting a hot iron of ten fingers breadth, pretty, can you, wow, breadth. Maybe it's like this, but anyway, it's big. Into the mouth of the person who used it. Wow. John says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Jesus said the same thing. So I would say that in the case where we find ourselves angry, particularly, as John is emphasizing here, brothers and sisters in Christ, I think you can go beyond that with a universal application, but particularly as it relates to our relationship with our fellow believers, that would include our spouses, if we find ourselves angry, we should be quick to repent, confess that sin and repent from it a very serious thing. And again, the, this person that he's describing here, the one who hates his brother, who is a murderer, and Jesus talking about the one who um, is angry with his brother, being subject to judgment, obviously we have that opportunity to confess that sin, to repent, and then be forgiven. But if there's no confession or repentance, we must take John's word that this person, uh, he says no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So someone who perpetuates an ongoing attitude, mentality, lifestyle of hatred towards others, according to John, that person cannot be truly saved, born again, or converted. And that's That revelation is not a bad thing because the worst thing that could happen to anyone is for them to go through life thinking they're right with God when they're not. Right? The devil has many ways of deceiving people. And one of those is to convince someone that they've been converted when they really haven't. So God gives us warning signs in the scriptures so that we can practice Self-examination. We're going to be taking communion today and we're going to read that verse from 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul talks about before you partake, let a man first examine himself. God gives us his word as a mirror. In the book of James, it talks about that. The man who hears the word and goes away and doesn't do it is like the person who looks in the mirror, sees his face, and then forgets what he looks like. So even though the words of John here may sound rather harsh, it's a blessing really because it helps us to evaluate our own spiritual life, our own relationship with God. And I think there are some people that are very conflicted because, at least at the surface level, they acknowledge a belief in God, perhaps even a belief in His Son, Jesus Christ, but they struggle on an ongoing basis with these horrible, this horrible inner turmoil of anger, bitterness, resentment. And they're baffled by it because they why, why am I like this if I'm a, I'm a believer? Well, John says, no, you're not. And again, that's, that's not a condemnatory thing. That's simply... God communicating to you you need to really yield your life to me you need to be truly born again being religious isn't enough you need a relationship with me so think about that as we go through this verse 16 John 3.16 1 John 3.16 by this we know love and by the way as we mentioned previously the word John is using throughout this passage is agapao, agapao it's a form of agape Unconditional love. By this we know that we love unconditionally, you could say, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So having clearly spelled out the requirements and expectations placed upon those who claim to be sons of God, John now tells us what that love should look like. And he uses the example, of course, of Jesus Christ because he laid down his life for us. Now Jesus did it in multiple ways. He sacrificed. As a man, he became a man. God came down, the incarnation. God became, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We read in John chapter 1. So he laid aside his glory in heaven. Big deal. Came down, took on the form of a man. Denied himself of the pleasures that most people are uh, engaged in in this life. He was celibate. He never. I can't imagine God getting married, but as a man, he certainly would have had those inclinations. Denied himself, and he said, "If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me." So he 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 traveled around for three years, basically sleeping out. In the open air, he said, hey, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The rock for a pillow and so forth. And then the ultimate denial, of course, the Garden of Gethsemane. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he ultimately laid down his life literally, physically. Before that, though, he remember when he got down on his hands and knees and washed the disciples' feet? He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. His whole life was that of a servant, even though he's the king of glory. So he's our role model, our example, and he took it all the way and died on the cross for our sins. John says the way that we really know agape, agape, agapao, unconditional love, is by the example that Christ set for us. For those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God, the Savior, Jesus is our role model, the example we follow, the one we are to pattern our lives after. And then in John 13, 34, he says a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Notice a little key phrase there in the middle, as I have loved you. And there are times, of course, yes, when Believers are called upon to literally lay down their lives for Christ. But I almost think that's not the hardest part. Although Christ was tortured physically, many believers down through the ages have been tortured and tormented physically. But the biggest challenge, I think, is to lay down your life on a daily basis, putting others before yourself, crucifying the flesh saying no to selfishness and yes to selflessness. You only got to die once physically. But as believers, we're called upon to die to self every day. That's a challenge, wouldn't you say? That doesn't mean we should give up on it, but it is a challenge and it's going to require total reliance upon God, His Holy Spirit, the truth of His Word, to be continually molding us, shaping us, and transforming us into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I remember, again, when we talk about the garden, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him to pray, and they all fell asleep, remember? Three times that happened. Jesus goes, Oy vey! Couldn't you just tarry with me for one hour? And uh, he says, The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak, Right? I mean, in our hearts, and our minds, and our spirits, we want to do the right thing. We want to be selfless. We want to lay down our lives. But I'm telling you that we always get this battle from the flesh. So we can't back down, slack off for a moment. Because when we do, that old dead man, the old man rises up. The flesh rises up. So we're not called to simply love one another. Say, for example, like... Uh, Peter loved John, or Mary loved Martha. We are to love like Jesus loves, and this is a tall order. Philippians 3, 10 through 14. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Notice, how many of you here today truly want to know the power of the resurrection? I see a lot of hands not going up, you know. Okay, God, (laughs) make note. There are some here today who don't want to know the power of the resurrection. (laughs) Yikes. But guess what needs to happen if you want to know the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Hello. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands on that one. (laughs) Being conformed to his death. Dying to self. If by any means, Paul says, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And Paul is not saying that he hopes to be resurrected based upon his good works. But he recognizes in order to be one of those who will eventually be raised from the dead, he needs to be all in. Knowing, understanding, believing in the power of the resurrection and being willing to enter the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Wow. That's where the deep fellowship is, you see? A lot of people are promoting a very shallow form of Christianity where everything's about warm, fuzzy feelings and prosperity and blessings and the good life in Christ. The good life in Christ comes when we spend eternity with Him. This life, whether we like it or not, is about suffering. Not all the time. I've been blessed so much in my life. But we have to, as believers, Paul, you know, to take the good with the bad. Not affected by our circumstances. Paul says, I know, I know how to be hungry. I know how to have plenty. You know, I know how to have lots of money and I know how to have no money. It didn't faze him one bit. It didn't alter his relationship with God one iota. And in fact, down through the course of my life I've experienced it firsthand and I've seen it in the lives of many others that some of the happiest which by the way the word blessed in the Bible means happy it's not the happiness that the world knows it's a happiness that comes from being in the grace of God and the will of God. Some of the happiest, most blessed most spiritually prosperous people that I've known have had the least materially. I've known a lot more happy poor people than I have rich people. Not that I've known that many rich people personally. They don't hang out with me. (laughs) But even in the public arena, we can see the results of worldly prosperity, materialism, And the negative impacts that it has on people. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, I want to be all in with Jesus, Paul says, wherever that takes me. And it took him into a lot of difficult places, did it not? Shipwreck, stoning, and so forth, and ultimately, death. Not that I've already attained. Paul kept himself humble. God helped him stay humble. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold of me. Boy, did Jesus lay hold of Paul, huh? And I'm sure a lot of us could say the same thing. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I don't know it all yet, Paul says. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and that's so important. Sadly, many people tend to live in the past, whether it's good or bad. Some people live in the past because it was a horrible past, and they can't shake it off. Other people live in the past because they think it was a lot better than the present. Jesus said, hey, having put your hand to the plow, if you look back, you're not worthy for the kingdom of God. The devil would love to have you keep looking back, again, whether it's a bad past or a good past. Neither one does you any good in the here and now. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal. And he told us what the goal was here in verse 10 the power of his resurrection. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The enemy would love to get us discouraged, frustrated, feeling helpless and hopeless. I just can't do this. I guess I am a murderer. I know I've harbored hatred in my heart. I know I've done these things. I can't seem to conquer them. I might as well hang it up. And some people have done that, sadly. Those who have made a profession of, faith in christ perhaps for a season have walked with him or have appeared to have walked with him and at some point the enemy has been able to convince them that it's hopeless and they give up paul says i don't look back i press on i press towards the goal for the prize of the upward and call of god in christ jesus and that's what each one of us need to do it's only by his grace that we stand. Verse 17, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So here's another practical thing Paul's given us. First of all, man, you can't be hating on your brothers and claim to be a born-again believer because you're a murderer. But then he says another practical expression of agapao is seeing someone in need having the ability to help them and doing so versus choosing not to. James 2.15 If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, Depart in peace. Be warmed and filled. I'll be praying for you, bro, sis. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body for their physical well-being and sustenance what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, there have been those in the past who said, I don't think that book of James is supposed to be in the Bible. <laughs> Sounds to me like James is promoting salvation by works. No. In fact, what, it, what the book of James does, it's a perfect companion with the writings of Paul, Romans in particular, because the book of Romans is the most powerful and dynamic book of the Bible regarding grace. Salvation by grace through faith. But James gives us the other side of the coin. We are saved by grace. We can never be saved by works. But if we are truly saved, there should be evidence of that salvation in the good works that we do. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And I, I don't think we can really argue with James on that point. And again, a lot of it has to do with, again, dying to self, denying the flesh, being selfless rather than selfish. And again, how do we, how do we achieve that? It's, God doesn't just wave a magic wand over us and suddenly, yes, certain aspects of conversion, there, there's a lot of instantaneous transformation that takes place in people's lives. I've seen people instantly off of drugs, off of alcohol, off of profanity, various things. But it's not always that quick and easy. And I don't know why, only God knows why. But it's an ongoing work that we have to perform. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We can't hope to be the epitome of holiness and righteousness and Christian maturity if we don't put forth any effort. Anything that we do in this life, if we want to be good at it, you've heard me say this so many times, we have to keep doing it. We have to practice. And that involves those basic fundamentals of discipleship prayer, Bible study, fellowship, service, Christian service, all these things contribute to our ongoing spiritual growth and maturity. The emphasis on these passages that we've been reading this morning are on brothers and sisters in Christ, our own spiritual family. You know, so often uh, we send money to people in third world countries. That's a good thing, but the poor of the inner cities or the deprived rural areas, that's all good. We should do that. But at the same time, often we fail to notice and meet the needs of people within our own congregations. And that itself is a two-sided coin because there's been so many times over the years as a pastor where I found out about somebody's need after the fact. And I go, Man, why didn't they say something? Why didn't they tell us? And oftentimes, the people who are most genuinely in need are the ones who are most hesitant to say anything. So that's why we need an increased sensitivity as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, when one part of the body hurts, The whole body hurts. But why is that? Because everything's connected, right? You stub your toe and you feel it to the top of your head, right? That's how the church should be. But in order for that to happen, there's got to be relationship. There's got to be fellowship. That happens people who hang out before and after the service on Sunday mornings. Don't just rush off to your car and leave. And you might think, I I just don't, uh, I don't really want to get to know anybody. Do my thing. But the day might come when you really wish you knew somebody. You see? There's, there's, there are times in life when we all need somebody, right? And maybe if you have a spouse, hopefully you can be that person, but not always. Sometimes we need other people. Relationship, fellowship, connectivity, if you will. Women's Bible study, men's prayer, koinonia groups are always opportunities to get to know people and build relationships. And you might think, well, I've already got plenty of relationships outside the church. But Paul's emphasis is on the church, the body of Christ, the brethren, and the cistern. And in the book of Proverbs, it says there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And it's not talking about Jesus, but we can certainly use it. And oftentimes, people do use that verse an application of our life in Christ, that Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. But that's not the literal meaning there. It says, a man of many companions may come to ruin. A lot of surface, shallow relationships. And some people, they have this need to be liked by everybody, right? But they don't have any really defining relationships, deep relationships. A lot of you know my, my good friend, Pastor Brian Davis. We've been meeting together weekly for 20 years or more, probably 22, 23 years. Brian's a good godly man and a good friend, and we can be honest with each other and share things with each other without any fear that one is going to reject the other. We all need those kind of relationships in our lives. It's like a David and a Jonathan, a Jesus and a John, If you don't have someone like that, pray that God will bring them into your life. And maybe they're praying that God will bring you into their life. But we all need that. And again, but how does that happen if we're not spending time with the body of Christ? Galatians 6.10, Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, but as we go through life, And I confess, I need to get better at this too, but we all should be looking for those opportunities when God, uh, just a moment in time where God presents us with an opportunity to do something good for somebody, to be nice to somebody. It was a very tiny thing, but yesterday, I was in a fast food place, I hate to admit it. (laughs) And there was a, a, a lady there, I don't know how old she was, she was older than me, I think, but she was somewhat disabled. I mean, she was getting around, but she was struggling a little bit. And she had gotten her food, and she dropped her whole stack of napkins. And they are all over the floor there. And I saw her start to go for them, and I ran over there real quick, and I, I said, let me get those for you. And I reached down and picked them up. I'm not bragging, folks, because I don't, I'm, I don't do that all the time, okay? I'm, <laughs> but at that moment in time, thank God, I actually listened to the Holy Spirit. And it was just a little silly tiny thing picking some napkins up off the floor but it blessed her if we watch for those opportunities they're out there all the time just to do something nice for somebody but now paul goes on here in verse 10 he says especially to those who are of the household of faith you know it's been said wow i'm going to get convicted before this even comes out of my mouth You can tell who a person really is by the way they treat their own family. Ouch. Sadly, in our flesh, we often treat our family members worse than we do other people because we think they're stuck with us. Right? Of course, in this day and age, families are a lot more fluid than they used to be. But we have this inner sense that, well, yeah, I can... Treat that person lousy because they're they're married to me. They're my kids. They can't make me not their father. (laughs) But I want people out there in the world to think I'm really great. So I'll be nice to them. But Paul says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. 1 Timothy 5.8 If any provide not for his own. And I know that Paul is speaking primarily here of Material provision, taking care of your family, making sure they have food and clothing and so forth. If any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he's denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. But I would say it goes beyond material provision. Because when Jesus taught the disciples what we call the Lord's Prayer, and he said, "Um, give us this day our daily bread, it's not just food. It's everything that we need mentally, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Father, give us everything we need daily to be a whole person. And so I would say here in First Timothy 5.8, if any provide not for his own, that it's not just about material things, it's about providing for them emotionally, spiritually, in every way. And so our first priority, according to John and Paul, Is our own family, our wife, our kids, elderly parents as they get older. Our first priority, if we don't take care of our families, we're worse than a non-believer. But right after that comes our Christian family. And again, it's not just material. It's not just helping somebody with their rent or utilities or food or whatever. It's being there for them. After, first, obviously, our relationship with God, then our family, our biological family, and right after that comes our Christian family. I learned this years ago, and it's always stuck with me, just a simple little, I'm forgetting the word I want to use, but you know when you take a word and each letter stands for something? That. So you take the word joy. John said, "This is my commandment that you love one another, that your joy may be full. Fullness of joy doesn't come from our own personal benefit, you know, like the prosperity doctrine, the faith doctrine. If you're really spiritual, you'll uh, you'll be wealthy and healthy, wealthy and wise." The first letter in joy is J, which stands for Jesus. He comes first. The second letter, O, stands for others. You guys know this, see? Jesus, others. The last letter, Y, stands for you. Jesus first, others second, you third. That is a good spiritual recipe for joy. And the thing about it is, when we operate that way, Jesus first, others second, you third, you, your cup, will runneth over. You'll never run out of all the things that you need in life, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. That old expression, you can't outgive God. Verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue but indeed and in truth. Obviously, John is not giving us a license here to verbally abuse one another. Words do matter as well, but he's saying that our love must go beyond words and be turned into actions. But let me talk for a moment about the tongue because it's important as well. James 2, 8 through 10. No man can tame the tongue. Only the Spirit of God can tame our tongues as we yield our lives to him. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. Ties right in with what we've been reading. If you you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And a manifestation of that hatred often comes from the words that are spoken. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God, or the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. So truthfulness in love is the trademark of Christian maturity. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we're in conversation with our brothers and sisters, it should be flavored with spiritual things. It's okay to talk about football or whatever, but there should be some talk about the Lord in there, the Psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs. Colossians 4 6, let your speech always be with grace. What's grace? It's unmerited favor. Well, he doesn't deserve it for me to be nice to him. I have nothing to do with it. Did you deserve for God to pour out his grace upon you? Absolutely not. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know. How you ought to answer each other. Yep, sometimes we kind of get off on our little petty issues and we kind of snipe at each other, right? We ought not to do that. Our words do matter, but they alone are not enough. Indeed, in actions. Reminded of the old adage, actions speak louder than words. It's like what we read a few moments ago. Be warmed and filled, man. I'll be praying for you. Oh, really? Well, um, that's great, but I could sure use a hamburger right now. <laughs> Again, we've said this many times as well love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling, it's a commitment a commitment to love your fellow believers and to be their keeper when necessary. A beekeeper. Genesis 4.9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Guess what the answer is. You better believe it. Obviously, God expected Cain to be his brother's keeper. He didn't expect him to kill him. Where's your brother? Of course, God knew. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground to God. But he was holding Cain accountable. In deed, actions, and in truth. When you really love somebody, you don't lie to them, do you? In actions or deeds, in deed and in truth. Speaking the truth in love. You don't skirt the issues or avoid confrontation. That's hard, boy, that's hard for all of us. But it's a lot easier if it's done in love and humility. You know... Approach them with humility. You know what? I'm just as guilty as you are. I'm far from perfect, but I do need to share this with you that this thing that you did or said, it kind of hurt my feelings, made me feel bad, whatever. You know, it offended me, and I'm sorry for being offended. But speaking the truth to one another in love. And not speaking from our own emotions, feelings, or opinions. Speak by, on, and from the truth, the authority of God's word. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. I want to read this from the NIV too. This this then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we we set our hearts at rest in his presence. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. To belong to Jesus. You see, to belong to the truth, Jesus is the truth, right? Right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. To belong to the truth is to belong to Jesus. To belong to the truth is to walk in the truth, to live a life of obedience to God by obeying His Word. So how do we know that we belong to the truth? 1 John 3, 14, we read this last week, I believe. We know that we have passed from death to life. That means we've been born again. Because we love the brethren. It's not because we have a really nice leather-bound Bible that we carry with us. It's not because we have some cool Christian bumper stickers on our car. It's not even because we go to church every Sunday, which is becoming less and less common these days. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. In order to love the brethren, you've got to hang out with the brethren, right? He who does not love his brother abides in death. It's kind of a companion verse to the one we started out with today. And then 3.18, we read this just a moment ago. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. How do we know we belong to the truth? We love the brethren, not just in words, but in deed and in truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. That's God's desire, that's God's goal. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about how the Israelites failed to enter into the rest of God. God had a promised land for them. He wanted to take them out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land where they could have rest and peace. And the Sabbath day was symbolic of that rest that we have ultimately in Christ. But we're told in the book of Romans they failed. They wandered in the desert for 40 years, remember? Because of unbelief, because of a lack of faith, they failed to enter into that rest. God has a place of rest for us. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. Have you ever come before God in prayer, say, with kind of a restless heart? Kind of a nervous, apprehensive, uncomfortable feeling that something isn't quite right? These next two verses may hold the clue to why. Why? Matthew 5:23 and 24. Therefore if you bring your gift to the altar, that's what we're doing today with our worship, even just sitting at the feet of Jesus and studying his word, taking communion here in a few moments, we're bringing our gift to the altar, we are the gift. And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go to your go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. If you have some unresolved conflicts in your life, that could be a reason why when you come before the Lord in prayer and worship, you feel uneasy, you feel restless. It's just actually the Holy Spirit trying to remind you you've got some unfinished business. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive men their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is not talking about a loss of salvation. This is not talking about that initial point of contact where you come before God and you confess to Him, you know He's right, you're wrong, you are a sinner, you need salvation, ask Him to forgive your sins, you're washed with the blood of Christ, you're born again by the Spirit of God. But we all know that we still have the capacity and the ability to sin even after we're saved. It's talking about a blockage, a barrier, a hindrance in our relationship with God because of unforgiveness in our own lives. This is one of the devil's biggest tricks and tools in his toolbox is to keep us in broken relationships Offenses, anger, bitterness. And I've said this many times too, but our relationship with God and our relationship with others, especially believers. Again, you can only go to a certain level with a non-believer. The most important thing we can have in common is our common faith in God and in Jesus Christ, right? That's the deepest a relationship can go is when we both know the God of this universe, the creator of the world, the savior of our souls. So we can never go as deep with a non-believer. Our relationship with God and our relationship with others, especially believers, is directly connected. Horizontal and vertical. There's God up there. We just read in James, you can't praise God out of one side of your mouth and curse your brother with the other. It doesn't work. The character of Jesus, I think it's safe to say, is one of love, grace, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. Would you agree with that? Is that a good description of Jesus? Let me read those again. Love, grace, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. If our lives are characterized by these things, according to John, who's speaking on behalf of God, we then know that we really belong to the truth, which means we belong to Jesus. And that'll be a good segue and transition into our communion time. So I'm not even going to pray now. I'm going to go right into 1 Corinthians 11, beginning of verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, writes Paul, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. I love that statement because there it's telling us he's not dead anymore and he's coming again. We celebrate his death not because it was permanent, but because his death... His death resulted in the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in other words, if you haven't confessed your sins to God, if you haven't acknowledged that you're a sinner and asked Him to forgive you and wash you with the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, to partake of communion would be wrong. It would be improper. Because it's not just a religious act. It's a recognition that the blood of Christ is sufficient to remove every sin. So if you've not received him as Lord and Savior, I would encourage you to either abstain from the communion or get saved right now. And you can. It's that quick. You simply confess to God that you're a sinner, ask him to forgive you, thank him for the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, and invite Jesus to come and live inside of you. And he will. He will. Verse 28, let a man examine himself. And David in the Psalms said, search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Give the Holy Spirit permission to search your heart. Show you if there's anything there that shouldn't be there. Maybe there is anger against someone. Maybe there is hatred against someone. You know what? It doesn't even matter if they did something right or wrong. Maybe they did something bad. We're still obligated as believers to not harbor anger, bitterness, resentment against them. And we need to repent of that if we have that in our hearts. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you. Isn't that interesting? And many sleep. Wow. So it is a serious thing. Sadly, in many churches, it's just performed as some kind of a rote, religious observance with no real depth of meaning. But Paul gives it some real depth here. This is serious business. Again, the juice is not literally the blood of Christ. It does not become the blood of Christ when you swallow it. The bread does not become his flesh in your stomach. But that does not take away from the extreme significance of what these elements represent. Verse 31, if we would judge ourselves, in other words, the self-examination, don't bury your sins, don't hide them deep within your heart and mind, give the Holy Spirit permission to bring them to the surface. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, and again, this is not eternal judgment, this is not loss of salvation, it's simply saying that God's going to hold us accountable. Those whom the Lord loves, He chastens. When we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. So none of us like chastening, but it's a whole lot better than being condemned with the world, right? God loves you. And so He will do whatever it takes to get your attention. So we can make it a lot easier on ourselves by simply practicing self-examination, giving the Holy Spirit permission to dig into the very depths of our soul, And dig up and root out anything that shouldn't be there. And he's more than willing to do that. He's ready, willing, and able. As we said, the character of Christ, love, grace, mercy, compassion, and forgiveness is all available here today. And it's represented by these elements of which we are about to partake. So let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, for the truth of your word. It is so powerful and so dynamic and so life-changing Lord, help us to put these truths that we've learned today into practice in our own lives, God. Lord, we do truly want to know that we belong to the truth. And you've told us how we can know that. So help us not to beat around the bush or ignore the evidence. Help us to look within our own hearts and minds for that agapao, that unconditional love towards one another. Lord, the self the self-sacrificial love of Christ. May it also come forth in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. We ask you now to prepare our hearts for communion. Search our hearts, O God, Holy Spirit. Show us anything that we need to confess before you today and repent of so that we can partake in a worthy manner. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.